Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Good to be with you today. Thank you for joining us. Maybe you've known somebody um, in fiction, uh, you know, a story that you've come across, or, or maybe someone you've, you've known uh, in real life, someone uh, who's a friend or a family member perhaps, who is driven by an overwhelming uh, kind of ambition. Uh, it, it so shapes their lives, it determines their decisions, it, it, that it seems to, uh, it seems to force them into uh, a kind of path of life that you actually look on with concern about. You look on and think, well, I, I'm not sure even if you've got this right. Maybe you've known this, this kind of tragic comic situation where, where you, you can't help wondering. Maybe, in fact, it's gone beyond wondering. You're, you're convinced, you know, that, that the verdict is clear. This person is deluded. They, they are making their whole life about a certain kind of achievement, maybe climbing a certain social ladder, uh, maybe a particular kind of advancement in their profession, maybe, maybe some other kind of success. There's just some passion that drives them. And you know it's not really them. It's, it's not really true to who they, they really are. Maybe they just don't have that gift or they don't really have that opportunity. And, and you, you, you find it kind of awkward and difficult maybe because not only is it a bit wrong-headed and, and deluded, but it's also harming them. It puts them in, in directions that, that aren't good for them. And, and, and also, you, you may have noticed in this kind of situation that there's a kind of intentional blindness involved. A delusion will often mean that you can't really bring the subject up. That there'll be some kind of denial going on. It may even express itself emotionally. It's not, it's not just an issue of disagreement. It's passionate. It's kind of visceral. They, they get heated when you, when you question their version of reality. When you try to bring some objectivity and perspective, it's, 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 it's seen as the enemy. They're kind of sickened by it. They, they're repulsed by it. And then there are moments as well. Maybe you've got 
examples of this in your own mind? I can imagine many from, from, from great stories, and some of them are kind of comedy and some of them are tragedy, where it's not just that they've got this delusion, but you begin to make a guess as to where it began. You can start to piece it together. Maybe they tip their heart in an unguarded moment. They say something that they don't know if you even heard it, but you clocked it. You didn't say anything, but you clocked it. You knew that you were beginning to get an insight into what makes them tick. There was something in the past. There was something that happened maybe when they were younger. There was something maybe that was done to them. Maybe it was something they did, a decision they made, a relationship they severed and it has shaped them since. It's put them into this, this version of themselves that they haven't really understood. They've not realized it, but they're chasing a dream that is wrong and harmful. And it can go right back to something that they won't even face the reality of. They will be blind about it. Let me ask you one more thing. Imagine if that person I'm describing is you. And why do I say that? Well, this is actually the Bible's presentation of the human story. This is actually who we are presented to be. Through, through these ancient stories, like the one that we just had read to us, this, this primeval story from, from such a distant age describes the human condition as it still is. It shows us who we really are. It puts the mirror up to us and says, here, here, behold yourself. And we find it an uncomfortable thing to consider. When, when I said that just now, imagine if this was you. Perhaps there is a reaction because we can't bear the possibility that this is us. But the Bible calls us to that very possibility. And, and what we see as we go through these stories in the book of Genesis, this first book of the Bible, is... God telling us our story deliberately, slowly, showing us by phase after phase, story after story, the reality of our situation, our need. Showing us how, how broken we've become. You may know that the chapters just leading up to this in chapter 11 involve the story of the, the flood. We looked at this just months ago in Emmanuel, the, the flood where you, you could say God kind of turned the machine off and on again. You know, the virus had got so serious, or at least the, the malfunction was such that it was like, oh, forget it, I'll just switch it off and switch it on, which, by the way, is about as technical as I ever get in, in my uh, software and hardware skills. He, he kind of turned mankind off, except for eight people. But then within literally a page of the Bible, we're faced with the horrible reality that even that, even that switching off and on again, didn't seem to work. Because humankind descends again, immediately into the same patterns of behavior, the same self-delusion. This story here is, is, the, is the shocking telling of that, of that fact, that, that we're back again in, in the ways that, that Surely, surely the flood, you know, the, the, the kind of epic chaos of this, this massive flood with destruction and, and you know, loss of everything would have, would have surely taught the lesson that was needed. Well, whatever it taught, it wasn't learned because the con condition is maintained. 
And so you have this next story where, where it's, it's, it's like you begin to see how deep the crack is. And what we're going to be doing over these next weeks is looking at how God, having shown us through these stories patiently, through history, the real human condition, begins what we're calling the reboot. He begins it, it's like he says, right, it's, it's off and on isn't good enough. I'm taking it back to factory settings, as it were. I want to restart humanity on a new blueprint. And he begins a process that actually takes the rest of this book. <laughs> it takes thousands of years. It's a slow process. And it begins in a very humble, unexpected, apparently inconsequential context. Just one old couple. We'll get to them in a few weeks. But first, I want us to see the dark side, if you like. I want us to see the, 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 the human condition as it's presented through these nine verses in chapter 11, this story of this tower. Let's, let's look at what is going on. First of all, it's a direct rejection of their instructions. They've been told in, in the very beginning and then again after the, the, the flood and the ark in chapter 9 and verse 1, fill the earth multiply, fill the earth, multiply. In other words, scatter, spread out. And what you have presented immediately is this decision instead to not do that, but to congregate, to gather in one place, to establish themselves in one place and not to multiply, not to fill the earth. And what's going on here is, is really some drives, some human drives being expressed. There are three key ones that you can see in this passage, three primary drives, like three primary colors that are at the very root of the human condition. You see the drive for security. Do you notice in the way they say in, in, in verse four, come let us build ourselves a city and tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. We don't want to be dispersed. We, we, we don't want that vulnerable condition. We, we want to be together. We want the strength of numbers. We want the strength of technology. We want to construct. We want to bake these bricks. We want to heat them up and get them ready so that we can construct, so that we will not be dispersed. Because we need security. We feel the need in this creation that God has put us in for some kind of sense of safety. That's a, surely a human instinct. I want to know that I'm going to be safe. I want to know that my, my health is secure. I want to know that my house is going to be there. I want to know that my bank account is going to still be worth something. I want to know that my, my kids will be provided for. I want to know that my education is, is still worth something. I, I, want, I need security just to, to, to function. I've got to lean into some sense of safety. Where am I going to get that from? Well, let's, let's, let's build with strength of numbers. Let's build with technology to get that safety looked after. You see as well their, their drive for identity. It's very telling that, that the phrase that, that stands out here is, is this desire for a name. Let's build a name for ourselves. It's not just the need to be safety, uh, safe and secure. It's the need to feel I'm worth something. I've established something. My life has had meaning. It's had purpose. I've, I've done something that will last. I've done something that will be looked at. I've done something that will be celebrated. I, I, I matter. 
I've got a name. I've got glory. I've got a genuine sense of identity. I know that I've demonstrated that I am someone. And then thirdly, you see a really a, a drive for what we would call spirituality. You kind of get it only in hints, I suppose, but it's, it's there. A, a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. If you, if you research the kind of ancient buildings of, of, of this kind of city in the very, very early stages of prehistory, you, you get these, uh, these, these notions of a high built up place that's meant to be a context for connection with the spiritual, with, with the gods, with the deities. A, a, a tower in the heavens, the, con the context of God, the gods, the heavens. And even the name Babel, uh, in, in, in their language, the Babylonians, as this came to be known later in the story of the Bible, they would have understood the word to mean gateway to the gods. Gateway to the gods. So they're hungering after some kind of spiritual connection. They want to feel like not just that their lives matter in this temporary age, but that they're connecting with something eternal, something spiritual. The mysteries of the universe are accessible to them, that they're achieving on a spiritual, even religious level. And these are all drives that are completely contemporary. The need for safety, the need for identity, the need for spirituality. I would have to walk about 100 yards down the road in Brighton from this building to see all three right in front of me. It's, it's the normal human condition and it's there at the very beginning of our story. Do you see? These are the same people as us. This is me and you here. And it drives them to this decision, which in itself you'd think, well, what's, what's harmful about this? What's wrong with a desire for a name or a desire for security or a desire for spirit? Aren't you in favor of that? Isn't that a good thing? Well, let's look even beneath these three drives. What is driving them even beneath the, the primary colors, if you like? Is there another color that's yet more primary? And the answer is surely yes. The thing that's driving them, perhaps without them even acknowledging it, is distrust. It's really what it is. They are suspicious and distrustful towards their God. They've chosen a directly disobedient approach to him and it results in these three passions taking on kind of monstrous proportions and so God can see where it's going God can see where it's heading these passions and drives that can actually look like they're perfectly under control they're building a nice tower it seems pretty good you're building a nice city look these lovely cities everywhere aren't they nice these gardens isn't it good civilization these are good things God has a way of seeing underneath seeing the drives and passions that direct this. This is why you get places like the, the book of James right up in the New Testament near the end of the Bible talking, talking to a, a, a nice group of people, certainly on the outside, James says this, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. It's, it's, it's a group of people he's writing to who certainly on, on every outward reading <laughs> would come across as extremely civilized and polite. But he's accusing them of murder, which seems a little over the top. 
but he's being completely true to his master Jesus who said, when you hate someone in your heart, you've murdered them. The passions and the drives inwardly are what God sees. These are the things that will show themselves and they're shown simply in his case by their prayerlessness. You don't ask. You don't come to God. He's the last person you'll come to. You won't come to him and so actually what happens is your passions are outworked in these other ways that ultimately will not go well. Which is why God actually intervenes in this story in a way that seems interesting, the language that he uses. If you notice, he says, I'll just read the specific line. God said, behold, they are one people and they have all one language and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Now we need to get clarity on what is going on here. This isn't God feeling a little bit nervous because he's suddenly intimidated by his creation. It's not like that. It's not like God saying, well, goodness me, you know, I'm in trouble now. <laughs> it's not like you know, that, that, the, the, farm, the animals in the George Orwell book or the, uh, or the birds in the Hitchcock film where the people have to like, move out of their house. Cause it's, like, it's not like when you go for a walk and you say to your friend, you know, the squirrels seem a little bit organised. It's not, it's not like God's kind of nervous. It's not like, okay, angels, quit meeting, plan B. Okay, they're organised. In fact, it's, it's the opposite. It's, quite, it's, it's kind of meant to be humorous when God says, let us go down. You know, the whole story has been, let's build up, let's build up, a tower, up, 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 up. And God says, oh, let's just let's go down and have a look. That's Hebrew humour. Okay, the Bible's very funny. And, uh, and it's also even the fact that he calls it Babel. So they go along blithely for centuries with the name Babylon, gateway to the gods. The Hebrew word Babel means confusion. Or it just means what Babel, that's what it means, literally Babel. So they're like gateway to the gods. And God say, oh really? Yes. Confusion is what I would call it. The Bible says, he who sits in the heavens laughs. God is not intimidated. He's amused. He's amused like a, like a good parent who says, Johnny, can I just take that kitchen knife off you before you hurt yourself? It's like, just, let's, just, let's just sort this situation out. We'll talk next week about how God sorted the situation out. He steps in, he, he breaks it up because he knows where it's going. He knows it will be bad, it will be dangerous, and he doesn't want to allow it. But we still build Babels, don't we? Even with the rubble of the tower <laughs> that was left dilapidated for centuries or whatever, it, whatever became of it, we find the bricks. We still carry on with our attempts to build something for our own name, for our own security, for our own spirituality, because those are the three things we could never trust him about. That's the, the, the whole point of what, what we'll see as we go into the rest of this story in the weeks to come. We'll notice that what God's doing, slowly but surely, God is bringing through a different kind of community. Starting with just one couple. He starts a new kind of community built on people who's, let me read to you from, from what it says about them in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. It says this about Abram, by faith, he went to live in the land of promise. 
he, he, he went, he multiplied, he scattered to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. That was enough for him. We'll get to him. God's rebooting. God's starting again. God's saying, I want, I want to show you there's a different way to live. And what this, this way of living is built upon is instead of distrust, it's built upon total trust. Total confidence. What the Bible calls faith. Trust and confidence in the living God because he's trustworthy. Because he's good for these things. These concerns that we, we, we carry, these, these concerns for security. We notice that our attempts to build our own sense of security do not work. It didn't work for these people. They say, let us build a tower so that we will not be dispersed. What happens by the end of the story? They're dispersed anyway. It doesn't work. If you've lived long enough, you only have to live 20 years on this planet to have seen quite a lot of proof that our attempts of security don't work. If you were living 12, 13 years ago, you would have seen one of the biggest economic crises in modern history, demonstrating that you can be utterly, utterly living in the good of total sheer financial confidence in one moment. And then everything, everything has turned upside down. And over, even this last year with the pandemic, all of our sense of security and confidence that life can be predictably safe, that we can bank on certain kinds of rhythms and routines that will never be shifted. Friends, it's foolish, surely, and precarious to imagine that you can construct by whichever bricks or technology or sort of social media or anything that you find at your disposal to construct a certain security for yourself that makes you feel safe. We need to humbly accept the fact that we are at the mercy of forces and things well beyond our feeble control. What we need is not our own resources to come back humbly and meekly to the God who put us here. So you are my security. Come back to what he says, even, even to come back joyfully, gladly singing. The more singing we get to do, the better, right? Songs like this, this ancient song, God is our refuge and strength, Psalm 46, a very present help in trouble. I've got troubles. I better build something out of bricks. God is very present in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though the waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. That would have been the song of Abraham, surely. And that's the song that's missing in this community at Babel, who've never understood They've instead blindly, deludedly resisted and resented the idea that God alone can give the security they crave. What about you? How are you responding to, to insecurities, unpredictabilities? How are you responding to the future? Where are you placing your confidence? 
I should say, in whom are you placing your confidence? Here's the warning about those who fail to see the security that's found in him. Let me look, quickly move on to the other, the, the, this longing for a name, right? This desire for a name, isn't it bizarre that not one of these people is named? They long for a name. We don't even know who they were. Their names don't get in the Bible, <laughs> which is unusual. There's lots of names in the Bible. The only name, actually, if you go to chapter 10, the only name of this community is the kind of figurehead character called Nimrod, which I find quite amusing because in America, that slang for you know, someone who's like seven feet tall and has a few nuts and bolts missing. <laughs> someone who's kind of big and powerful but a bit slow. Nimrod. So well done. It went well for you, Nimrod, that you built yourself a name. The name that God gives them is Babel, a joke name. Friends, it, it's, it's a fool's errand, right, to pursue for ourselves a name. But what a temptation. What a, what a powerful temptation to spend our life, to spend our life yearning for some kind of achievement recognition, something that will give us glory and to go grabbing a name is disastrous. Listen, the only glory that will last is glory that's given, not grabbed. It's given. There's, there's, a, there's a, a theme through the Bible. God loves to give names. He loves to. He loves to give freely, kindly. <laughs> but not to those who snatch at them. The model in the scriptures is Jesus, who did not consider equality with God as something to be snatched, but humbled himself, made himself nothing. Therefore, the Bible says, God has exalted him to the highest place and given him a name that is above every name. Then the third thing that they longed for was spirituality. They wanted to get into the heavens. They wanted to ascend into the presence of the gods, into the presence of spiritual life. They knew there was such a thing. So do we, even with our atheism, 20 centuries later, or, or I don't know, hundreds of centuries since these people, with all of our secularism, with all of our, our kind of materialist confidence, we know, we know, we know there's a spiritual reality. We long to kick into it. We long to find our way into it. How do we find our way into it? How can I get in with God? None of us can, not by our own feeble attempts, not by our towers and ladders, not by our, our constructions. We won't. We simply can't. The reality is, is, is that we're too ruined by our distance from God. We're too broken and too far from him. And any attempts we make are subject to the, just the force of gravity, let alone anything else. What goes up must come down. Any attempt we make. You ever tried to earn your way to God? Ever tried to be good enough for God? Maybe you've done quite well for a couple of weeks or thought you had. This is their story. Climbing up to be spiritual. They didn't understand the kind of God they're dealing with. He's the God who comes down. He's the God who literally came down to us. Until you get to know him, I'm afraid you, you, must, you must know him. You must know him. This is the kind of God who comes to you not at your most impressive, but when you see that you're broken. 
when you see that you're in need of him. When you're in the gutter, you meet him because he comes to the gutter. He comes to the one who's not impressed with themselves. He comes to the one like, and I'll finish with this, just these words from Proverbs chapter 30 that so struck me as I was looking at this story. This is another ancient king, King Agar, who just cries out from a place of tortured pain at the very end of the book of Proverbs with all of its wisdom about how to live, how to be wise, how to be knowledgeable, how to, be, how to live well. And this is his sort of summarizing cry of the heart. I am weary, O oh God. I am weary, O oh God, and worn out. Surely I am too stupid to be a man. I have not the understanding of a man. I've not learned wisdom, nor have I the knowledge of the Holy One. Who has ascended to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? What is his son's name? Surely you know. God will, will find ways to drive us to that kind of desperation. Maybe that's what's happened to you. Maybe you're at the point where you know that you're too stupid <laughs> to be climbing up by your own arts, by your own skills. Come to desperation. Come to the God who's humble enough to meet you low down, to meet you in the gutter. The one who says, foxes of the earth have, have holes, the birds have nests, the son of the man has no place to lay his head. And, and trust him. Opt out of the lies of Babylon. Opt out of your delusion. And put your trust in him who is building a city that is going to last forever. Let's just pray. Father, thank you for your son Jesus who is everything we need. And we, we pray, Lord, that you'd help us to, unlike these in the story and more like Abraham, confidently trust in your goodness and faithfulness. In Jesus' name, amen.